we're going to uh, jump into something that's going to be a little bit different, uh, maybe a lot different for you today. Um, <clears throat> so I want to start out with, uh, with Carl Jung um, and this idea of um, archetypes in the, what Carl Jung called or identified as the collective unconscious. So collective, the collective unconscious and archetypes, this idea of archetypes. So a lot of people have heard of the collective unconscious, but don't necessarily know what it means. And a lot of people have heard of archetypes in the collective unconscious, but don't necessarily know what that means either. So I want to give a little bit of an explanation. So Carl Jung uh, was absolutely a brilliant man. I think in many ways he was a prophet. I think he was ahead of his time. I think he's very difficult to understand. I think if you think you understand Carl Jung, and even experts on Carl Jung will say, if you think you understand Carl Jung, you don't understand Carl Jung. <laughs> they have this idea that he was just beyond the rest of us. But the idea of archetypes in the collective unconscious was really his biggest contribution. And <clears throat> so the idea of the collective unconscious is that we all share uh, collectively in a consciousness that is dictated to us by what he called archetypes. And archetypes are images or symbols that govern, literally govern, the structure of our thinking and which then the structure of our consciousness governs the structure of our consciousness collectively. So, so it's something that we all share in. So here's the idea. <clears throat> the idea is that cultures all have similar myths, similar stories, and relatively similar structure to their families and societies and thinking globally around the world and through every age of human history. So the idea is if you could start your own colony of humanity on planet Earth and find some place where they had no exposure, where you could take people, deprive them of any exposure to any information, and start a colony someplace where they didn't have any interaction with anybody else, eventually their society, their stories, and their structure of their thinking would become patterned after the collective unconscious, which is governed by archetypes. <clears throat> so you have the archetype of the hero, uh, the story of the hero. And Star Wars is perfect uh, example of this, especially the first one, you know, the 1977 one or whatever, uh, where you have the hero that goes away from home, goes through trials, conquers evil, and comes back. And you see the, the hero archetype or the hero story governing a lot of movies and stories and books and stuff that's being written and done. Family, marriage and family would be another um, example of these archetypes. So they create the boundaries and the borders of our thinking, govern our thinking, structure our thinking, and uh, our consciousness. So then someone has to ask, where do these archetypes come from? And I would like to suggest, and I think Carl Jung would have suggested this as well, that the archetypes in the collective unconscious that govern our stories come to us from the stars, literally come to us from the stars. Uh, and our position on Earth in the universe itself. 
so that ancient people, you got to remember, ancient people didn't have the technology that we have. They weren't as obsessed with entertainment, and they weren't connected on things like Facebook and social media and cell phones and things like that, right? So they studied for thousands of years the movement of the stars, the movement of the constellations, the movement of the sun, and to a large degree that structured their obviously their calendars but also their society, especially when you think about agricultural, the the advent of the agricultural age and all of that stuff. And their myths in every culture, and those myths came to them, from their observation of the stars. In other words, they would look at the stars and they would try to figure out what story the stars were telling so that they could understand their own origins. And so their stories or their myths would come to them from the stars. So this fits with the hermetic principle, a couple of hermetic principles, as above, so below, uh, as within, so without. Also, this idea that everything is united, that everything is connected, that All is one. And also this idea of the microcosm and the macrocosm. So that everything that's going on in the world, if you look at the world, you can understand yourself. If you understand yourself, you can understand the world. That's the idea of the microcosm and the macrocosm. That you as a human being and your consciousness, you're sort of a mini universe, if that makes sense. So... The idea of astrology, then, is this idea that when you look out at the constellations and the stars and the movements of the planets and the movements of the sun, that it is also representative of the movements of the soul and what's going on within you, or as above, so below, as within, so without. That's the connection between astrology and consciousness, or astrology and personality. Now, what's fascinating is that many of the stories in the Bible can be told from the stars or be seen very, very clearly in the stars. So it's it's kind of common in some circles today to say that the people who wrote the Bible stole stories from other cultures and made them their own. I'm not sure if that happened or not. It's possible. Or it's just possible that they were telling the same stories from the stars in different ways. And that the Hebrew Christian mythos or storytelling or myths are similar to other myths in the sense that they were telling them from the stars. So in other words, you had 12 tribes of Israel. You also have the 12 major constellations that the sun passes through in a year. That's the reason there were 12 tribes. And the banner for each tribe represents one of the ancient constellations, so much so that they marched through the wilderness in a specific order where they had the cardinal points uh, or the cardinal uh, constellations. So, for example, when Ezekiel sees the cherubim, he sees one with the head of a lion, that represents Leo, one with the head of a man, that represents Aquarius, one with the head of a bull, which represents Taurus, and one with the head of the eagle, which represents for us what, what we call in modern day Scorpio, but what the ancients uh, thought rather than being a scorpion, they saw it as being an eagle in the sky. So the lion, the man, the ox, and the uh, the eagle 
represented again, Leo, uh, Aquarius, Taurus, and Scorpio. So my point is that all ancient people did this. All ancient people looked at the stars and told their stories from the stars. Now, with that in mind, I want to look at something interesting in Matthew's gospel. I want to look at the Christmas story from the perspective of the stars. And I want to look at Matthew's account of the story. And then I want to, I want to also look at, uh, December, why we celebrate the birth of Christ on December 25th. <clears throat> now, uh, let's see. Let's just do this. Let's go with, um, let's go with Matthew chapter 1 verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, it's important, in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us, or God among us. Say God with us. Then it says, uh, let's drop down to chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, or magi in the original language, came from the east, or wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. Now, geographically here, and you guys, I'm, I'm... Trusting you know the rest of the Christmas story with the Magi. Now, let's start off with this. Mag- the, the word wise man there is the word Magi. It's where we get the word magic. It's where we get the word magician. We know that the Magi were a priestly caste. So we know that the Magi were in a priestly caste from Persia, or what was known as Babylon. Also the same place that Daniel was elevated to chief among the Magi uh, in the story of Daniel in, in the Old Testament. And they were coming from the east following his star. They saw his star. And they came to worship him. So let's let's back up a little bit and let's talk about Matthew's gospel, first of all. So let's come back. Let's talk about Matthew's gospel. Matthew... Uh, was not written by Matthew the tax collector. There's really no serious, intellectual, non-biased Bible scholar anywhere in the world today that believes that Matthew's gospel was written by Matthew the tax collector. Um, generally, it's believed that Matthew was written sometime between 70 A.D. and 110 A.D. The more conservative a person's bias the closer they put the dating to 70 A.D., um, 
perhaps the more objective Bible scholars see it as being dated even later. <clears throat> but what is pretty much a consensus is that it was written definitely to the Jewish believers in Jesus at the time and probably written by a Jewish man who was familiar, obviously, with the technicalities of the law and the story of Jesus and whatever. And they believed that he took uh, <clears throat> his information from the book of Mark, which we know was written first, and another uh, hypothetical text that they call Q. Now, I don't want to get into all that um, stuff. But it's important to see that Matthew's Gospel is being written from the perspective of a Jewish person to the to a Jewish audience, because we're going to see these connections in a little bit. But it's also interesting that he introduces the Magi into the story at the very beginning, because Luke's account, there is no account at all of Magi. There's only accounts of shepherds. In fact, Luke's account is completely different than Matthew's account of the birth of Christ. So he brings in the Magi, or he brings in the stargazers right away, and there's an interesting, interesting problem that is embedded in the story with the journey of the Magi that gives us a clue that he's not trying to tell a literal story. He's telling the story of Jesus from his own theological bent, um, and it's really masterful in some ways. But here's what the Magi say. They say, we came from the east. Watch this. We came from the east, which means they're traveling. If they came from the east, they're traveling west. And we do know that Persia is east of Jerusalem. So their their travel, if it was historical, natural, literal narrative, would have been from the east to the west. So here's the problem. They say, we came from the east, for we saw his star in the east, and we followed it. Now, if you're in a certain location, and you see something in the east, and directionally you follow that, <laughs> what direction are you going? Because later they, the, the, the Magi tell Herod that they followed the star, and the star rested where the Christ child was born. So if they saw the star in the east, and they're following the star, they're going east, they're not going west. So we have a problem geographically. <laughs> I mean, we have a real problem in the text because it says they came from the east, they saw the star in the east, and they followed the star, but they ended up in Bethlehem, which is west of Persia. So if Matthew is telling a historical event, a geographical event, or about travel or something that happened in the here and now, <laughs> right? It doesn't work. But if he's pointing to the stars, if he's pointing to the stars and saying, I'm telling a story from the stars rather than from history, we can make sense of it. Now, I know this is going to sound a little bit mind-blowing because it's a different approach than most people have taken. So I'm going to, I'm going to show you real quick my, um, my source because I'm not an expert on this by any means, but I have this giant book here. I don't know if you can see it. Um, but the title of the book is uh, uh, Star Myths of the World and How to Interpret Them. And this is volume three by this guy. And he calls it uh, the Star Myths of the Bible. And so he takes the stories of the Bible and he shows how the constellations in the sky, with their ancient meanings, tells perfectly the stories that are told in the Bible. It's pretty fascinating, pretty interesting. So here's what he says. I'm going to try to... Uh, 
summarize it as best I can because this certainly isn't my area of expertise. But if you're interested, again, uh, the guy's name is David Warner Matheson. You can check it out with there. Uh, and there's been other people that have done this as well. So how do you – obviously, we see linear-wise, you can't come from the east and follow a star in the east and end up in the west. But what the guy points out in the book is that every, you know, every constellation, as the Earth is moving through the, the, its orbit around the sun, it's changing its position relative to the constellations, right? And so the sun appears to uh, pass through when it's rising, when it's, excuse me, the sun appears to pass through Virgo in September, uh, Scorpio, I think, in October, and then uh, I can't remember what it is in November, December, anyway, but you get the point. So the, as the Earth is moving, it's changing, the Earth is changing its position relative to the constellations, but it looks like, from our perspective, that the Sun is changing its position relative to the constellations. So as it's moving through the constellations, the constellations in the sky are actually rotating and moving as well. Now, here's the interesting thing. All of, because of the tilt of the earth and the way that it rotates around the sun, everything appears in the, in the heavens appears to ride through the sky from east to west. So the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And when constellations are becoming predominant in the sky, they are also coming from the east. They are rising in the east and setting in the west. So this then works perfectly because uh, it's believed that the three, the, the magi, the scriptures never actually say three, but you can trace tradition back about as far as you want to, and the church traditionally believed that there were three magi who brought three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, or three kings. Uh, think of the song, We Three Kings of Orient Art, right? So there was a group of stars in the ancient world, according to this guy, that were called the Three Kings. And the Three Kings were Orion's belt in the constellation Orion, Orion's belt. So if Matthew's talking about a constellation, and if the Magi are the Three Kings in Orion's belt, then you can see that as uh, Orion, the constellation Orion, becomes uh, manifested in the sky or manifested in the story, that the three kings, the Magi, are coming from the east. Can you see that? They're coming from the east because they're moving through the sky, not on the land. So they're coming from the east, so that takes care of that. And they look back and they said, we saw his star in the east, so... What you have then is you have the constellation Virgo or the Virgin also rising in the east. And there was a star in the constellation Virgo. I can't show you the, uh, uh, the diagrams, but they're in, they're in this book or you can do your own research. But there is a, uh, there was a unique star or one that the ancients revered in the constellation Virgo who was the Virgin who symbolized the divine feminine, 
who symbolized uh, and, and the thing about Virgo, because it, it, the sun would be rising in Virgo during the time of harvest in most places, or at the beginning of the harvest, then the way they would draw out Virgo is they would draw her out ca- carrying sheaves of wheat. Sheaves of wheat. Now, this is important. And her name was the House of Bread, because she was bringing forth the harvest. You see it? And then there was one star in particular. I forget the name of it. I'm sorry. But it represented the child that the virgin would give birth to. <laughs> in the Egyptian myths, Virgo, they think, probably represented Isis. And the particular star that I'm referencing represented Horus. So now you could see the three kings in Orion's belt coming from the east, but also seeing the star in the constellation Virgo or the star in the Virgin rising in the east as well. And and they go to Bethlehem because the way the stars are positioned, even though Orion is moving, let's say Orion's moving this way, because of the way his belt is positioned, the, 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 the stars, even though they're moving western to the west, are looking at Virgo and pointing directly to her star in the east. Ah, I wish I could draw the diagram for you so you could see it. Does that at least make some sense to you? Did I at least explain that in a way that makes sense to you? Now, the interesting thing about Virgo is, remember I told you she was called the House of Bread. And the name or the meaning of the name of the town Bethlehem is the house of bread. <laughs> and in between, when you're looking at the, at the sky, night sky, when the stars are positioned this way, in between Orion and the three kings in Orion's belt and Virgo is... Cancer, <clears throat> and one of the ancient terms or names or meanings of the constellation Cancer was it was called a manger. <laughs> Pretty amazing, isn't it? <clears throat> so it seems that Matthew is pointing us to the stars rather than to history to understand the story or how the heavens are declaring the glory of God. Now, I'm going to come back to Matthew in a minute. I'm going to connect it with our consciousness. Here, here's the other interesting thing. If I'm right, if it's the stars that is, and the energy of the stars and how it affects us that is establishing and dictating the parameters of what Jung called the collective unconscious and the archetypes within the collective unconscious, then if, and I do believe there is, um, life on other planets, then please understand the same principle is probably going to govern them, which means they are going to have perhaps a completely different type of consciousness governed by a completely different set of archetypes, which means that their planets, their society, their thinking, the, the way that they relate may be completely different uh, than our society and the problems that they have may be completely different than the problems we have. The stories they tell completely different than the stories that we tell because 
they're sitting in a different place relative to the stars. All right, so I just wanted to make that point. <clears throat> now, here's the other interesting thing about Christmas uh, in the sky. Now, we celebrate the birth of Christ as Christians. We celebrate the birth of Christ on December 25th. And again, this is a thing where people get, you know, um, a debate and say, you know, there are Christians that say you shouldn't celebrate Christmas because it's a pagan holiday. And then the pagans say, yeah, the, the Christians stole the holiday from us. They took the date. Um, they point to some pope someplace who uh, wanted to take the pagan festivals and make them Christian. And maybe there's truth to that. From my study, it, it appears from what I've looked at, if my memory serves me correctly, that the historical uh, references for that, the historical evidence for that is pretty sketchy, that that's what happened with the church. Let me tell you why they picked December 25th as the birth of Jesus. Because remember, Jesus, Jesus then, in this sense, in Matthew's gospel, is potentially an archetype. And he's not telling a historical event at all. But he's trying to point to archetypes and things in the heavens and their correspondences to things on earth and things in us. So that as in heaven, so on earth. <laughs> So it's possible that Jesus is an archetype of the higher self or of the ideal self, which is what Jung himself thought. <clears throat> but here's why December 25th. Because on December, uh, from, from the summer uh, solstice, the summer solstice, <clears throat> June 20th or 21st, whatever, 22nd, whatever, whenever it happens, <clears throat> the days begin to become shorter. <clears throat> And the sun moves in a southern trajectory. So that we're having progressively less and less daylight. As that happens, the earth is giving forth, uh, is producing the crops during that whole process of those seasons. Seed time, harvest, all that stuff, right? Through the summer, you get to the fall, it's harvest time. But the days are getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter until you get into December. And how many of you noticed? I, it's, I'm getting more seasonal depression now, partly because I've been quarantined because of COVID and, and just all the craziness that's in the world right now, right? But it doesn't help that it gets dark at 445 or whatever it is now. I mean, I liked when it got dark at 845, started getting dark at 845 or whatever at the height of the summer solstice. So the way the ancients understood this, was that the sun is gradually dying until you get into December and it's cold and it's dark. There's no light or, or there's less light and less warmth from the sun. And so they're watching the sun in its peak and they're watching it gradually become less and less, uh, having less and less influence on the earth. And so it's the death of the sun. <laughs> And on December 22nd, right around the time of the winter solstice, the sun gets to its lowest point. You have the darkest day in the year. And for three days, by the observation of the ancients, for three days, 
There is no perceivable change or movement in the sun. So they would say that the sun dies on December 22nd and stays in the grave for three days, 23rd, 24th, and 25th. And then on the 25th, there is a perceivable one degree shift in the sun. And from that moment on, from December 25th on, the sun begins its ascent or the sun begins its rising in order to bring forth, in order to end the deadness of winter and in order to bring forth a cycle, a renewal to the earth, of springtime, things will start budding again, things will start coming alive again, or they will be born again. There will be a new birth. So the sun dies on December 22nd, it's in the tomb for three days, and then on December 25th, the sun rises from the dead in order to become the life giver that gives life and light and renewal and rebirth and regeneration to all things, and that is how the Christmas story is found in the movement of the sky. That's that. That's the deal right there. That's why December 25th celebrates the, the birth of Christ, why we celebrate the birth of Christ on that day. It also explains why, this whole thing that I'm going into, also explains why Jesus is born of a virgin. Because it's not talking about a woman who had sex with the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's just, let's just get real about this. Alright, so, let, let, this is for all my Trinitarian friends out there, alright? The, the God is one manifested in three beings. Uh, and it's noticeably three males. You have no feminine, you have no divine feminine in the Trinity, but yet you have the most homophobic people on the planet that are committed to that belief. So go, go figure that. But, but here's what you got. You got the Holy Spirit coming and having sex, with a virgin girl. <laughs> like, did she consent? Did she consent to this? I mean, we know she did at the Annunciation when she told Gabriel, be it unto me according to your word. So I guess she did, but, uh, I mean, how did that happen? I mean, think about how creepy this is. The, the Holy Spirit comes in and impregnates Mary with Jesus. Now, if Trinitarian doctrine says Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all one. So Jesus is coming so that he can die on the cross for our sins. So literally God is saying to a 13, 14-year-old girl, I'm going to impregnate you with myself so that I can kill myself so that I can forgive you. All right. Probably that's not what the ancients are pointing to. They're probably pointing to Virgo, <clears throat> as being the virgin. And it makes sense if Matthew is trying to give us hints and clues to say, look, gang, I'm telling the story that the heavens are declaring. Now, remember, Joseph has dreamed. So, so here's the other thing that's interesting that you see in the first couple of chapters of the story. Remember, Matthew is being written by a Jewish person to Jewish people. So he's coming out of the mythological matrix of what we call the Old Testament, what the Jews called it's not, the, 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 the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. That's their matrix of symbols and ideas and stories and history. 
And he introduces the birth of Jesus by introducing a man named Joseph. And throughout the telling of Matthew's gospel, the way God speaks to Joseph is through dreams. God speaks to Mary through an angelic appearance. But in Matthew's gospel, God speaks to Joseph only through dreams. So you have Joseph, who is a dreamer, who is hearing from God. And then you have stars. Then you have stars. I seem to remember a Joseph in the Bible (laughs) who had a dream, who God spoke to in a dream about stars. So I want to, I want to find that, see if I can find that real quick. Is this okay? I haven't really looked at the comments. Yeah, I've always thought that too, Ben. The Holy Spirit equals an incubus. Yeah, I've I've thought that too. I mean, how can you not think these things? Like, like these are the forbidden things that, I mean, I always worried about that and wondered about that, especially the hyper-deliverance crowd that was all worked up about incubus spirits having sex with women. Oh, or that, anyway, yeah, let's don't go there. Thanks, thanks, man. <laughs> oh, where is Joseph's dream? Well, I'm not going to. Waste of time trying to find it. I, I could find it if I had my other Bible. I'm sorry I wasn't totally prepared for this. And I'm not an expert on this approach to Scripture by any means. I'm just trying to introduce you to some different thoughts. Um, anyway, this doesn't have the breakdown of topics. Um, oh, no, I just found it. All right, so Genesis... Chapter 30, 37, verse 5, it says, Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. And so he said to them, Please hear the dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. Now when do you bind sheaves in the field? At the end of the harvest time, right? In the fall. Remember, Virgo brings the sheaves, house of bread, remember all that? Then behold, my sheaf arose, and also stood upright, and indeed your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. Now, this is astrological in principle because you're dealing with harvest time. So you're dealing with the time in a season. And his brother said to him, shall you indeed reign over us or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon and the 11 stars bowed down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth? Shall we indeed come down to the earth to bow before you? And his brothers envied him, but Joseph kept this in his mind. Come on, guys. Matthew takes a Joseph who's going to be uh, the the escort, if you will, to the virgin, to Mary who is going to give birth to a child that the child conceived in her is conceived of the Holy Spirit, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he shall save his people, or he shall save you from your sins. And you shall call his name Emmanuel, or God with us. Then he points you back. He, 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 he picks Joseph to be the guide through the first part of the story. Joseph is 
spoken to in the New Testament only through dreams. This has to be pointing Hebrew people and Jewish people back to Joseph in the Bible. And then you have the whole issue of the stars, right? And Jesus' star, uh, specifically. And then, you know, and, and also you have this whole idea of Bethlehem and the sheaves and the harvest. And so all of this is pointing back to, uh, the telling of Joseph, because then Jesus goes down into Egypt. So it's pointing back to the story of Joseph. And Joseph has this dream that the sun, the moon, and the stars are going to bow down to him. So now let's see if we can bring this all together. What is the point other than the astrological telling of the stars? What's the point? I mean, we just pass it on stories. Is this just for entertainment? Or... Is there something deeper going on here that's relevant to us? Because remember, I started this out by saying, as above, so below, as within, so without. Uh, the hermetic principle that all these patterns and things are connected, that everything is one, uh, and that we are the microcosm, our consciousness is the microcosm of the universe, which is the macrocosm. So what we're seeing played out in the stars, what we're seeing played out in the stories, what we're seeing played out in any uh, mythos, any storytelling can, is, is there to impact, to impact our consciousness, to help us wake up to some truth or some reality. And so, Joe, I don't, I don't think Matthew or the writers of the Gospels are necessarily telling a story from a historical perspective as much as they're telling the story to awaken their readers to some truth, some truth about God and some truth about themselves. And so the virgin birth, if we make it a literal thing, we got a real problem. We have, we have the Holy Spirit having sex with the virgin, uh, God having sex to give birth to himself so that he can go and kill himself. Or do we have something else going on that we can connect to all of this that can really help us and that we can align ourselves with and think about in this season in order to give birth to new meaning to Christmas in our lives so that we can keep our Christmas stories and keep our Christmas carols and, and keep the magic of Christmas, if you will, as Christians, but yet not be hung up on the history of it, but understand that it's representing a process that's taking place inside of us. That there is to be born inside of you and inside of me by the Holy Spirit, by, by a virgin birth, if you will, a child, a new life, a new being, a, a, a star that is to rise within us, that is that divine spark that is supposed to be rebirthed in us. So that the Christmas can represent for us the end of darkness and the end of the coldness of our lives and the end of no revelation about who we are, stumbling around in the dark, groping for God. And it can represent for us the birthing of the Christ consciousness, the birthing of the Christ in us, the birthing of the divine spark, that which does not come from man, but that which comes directly from God. Remember that Paul said that before the foundations of the world, God chose you in Christ. God chose you in Christ before the foundations of the world. So before he set the world in its foundations, before he put the stars in the sky, before the sun, before any of this, you existed. You you were part of that divinity, divine consciousness. So before there could ever be a man that could give birth, you, you understand what I'm saying? So you have a natural human element that's taking place, and you have a spiritual, heavenly, divine element that's taking place. 
And the purpose is the marriage between the divine, between the human masculine and the human feminine to, to come together, the divine masculine and the divine feminine to come together to give birth to the third thing, which is the son in you and in me. So that Joseph represents the masculine consciousness, which has to marry the virgin. The subconscious, which is in connection with the higher self and the super consciousness. You have to go back to some of my other teachings to get this. Remember, we talked about three levels of consciousness. Three levels of mind. There's the conscious mind, what you're aware of right now. That's the masculine principle. There is the subconscious mind, which receives the suggestions from the conscious mind and incubates it in order to give birth. But also the subconscious mind, there is a third consciousness called super consciousness or called the divine consciousness or the mind of God <clears throat> or the mind of Christ or Christ consciousness or whatever you want to call it, right? Uh, the higher self, what, however you want to understand that, it's, to me, again, it's all semantics. That's the third level of consciousness. And we know from uh, the, the ancient wisdoms and from experience that the, uh, the superconsciousness, the divine mind, is speaking to the subconscious. It's, it's buried, if you will, within the subconscious, right? <clears throat> So the conscious mind has to embrace the virgin, which is the subconscious mind, and find that which the find that place where the virgin, the subconscious, is meeting and being interpenetrated and and overlapping and in union with and crossing the boundary where the subconscious mind and the mind of God, those boundaries cross. Remember Paul said that the mind, that the Holy Spirit came to reveal spiritual things, that they have the mind of the Spirit. Jesus said you have to be born of the Spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of Spirit is Spirit. So there's this place where the Holy Spirit and your subcon and your feminine virgin, if you will, meet <laughs> so that a thing can be born, so that God can dwell with us, so that there is a marriage between the human and the divine, a marriage between, see this idea, I still, still, still think this idea that we have to get rid of our ego is a is, is an error. It's just going to lead us into another ditch. What's supposed to happen is a marriage between the flesh and the spirit, between the divine and the human, so that it is God with us, so it is God manifested in the flesh. We came here to have the human experience, but also to birth the divine son within us. That which is conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit, and it is that self that will save you from your sins. What does that mean? <clears throat> All right, let's come back. Let me Let me come back. Is this making sense to you? Yes, Vanda says the most holy place. Absolutely. The tabernacle that you are, the, the inner <clears throat> holy of holies, that place inside of you where this, this authentic you, if you will, that is divine and human is being birthed and manifested. And that when that, that happens, you, the, the darkness is being chased away. <clears throat> the coldness is being chased away. Rebirth, renewal is happening just like with the sun is happening when that Christ consciousness, that Christ self is born in you, but married to the ego. Not the ego obliterated to get there, but the two coming together in a union in order that the divine might find perfect expression through your authentic ego and humanity. Does that make sense to you? 
that's really what I think that story is telling us about. But now let's come back, let's come back to a couple other principles. When you think of astrology, whether you believe in it or not, if I say astrology, not astronomy, typically what do you think of? Most people will say my sign is. My sign is Virgo. Or is it? <laughs> See, we have a very limited uh, understanding uh, of astrology. But if I were to tell you my sign is Virgo, what's what's one of the first things you might do? You might Google Virgo to what to find out what I'm like. What are Virgos like? What are their personalities like? Now, what people don't realize is that if you have a full birth chart done, it's very, very complex. That when I say I'm a Virgo, I'm only talking about one of my signs. I'm only talking about one relatively small aspect of my astrological birth chart. <clears throat> because did you know that, that when you talk about your sign, you're talking about your sun sign. You're talking about where the sun is in the sky relative to the constellations when you are born. But there are eight other, I'm sorry, not eight, uh, six other heavenly bodies that show up in your birth chart. So did you know you also have a moon sign where the moon is in relative to the constellations when you're born? Venus is in a sign. Mars is in a sign. Jupiter is in a sign. Saturn is in a sign. Mercury is in a sign. And then the sun is in a sign. Then you also have what they call a rising sign, <clears throat> which is relevant to the sun. And all this stuff then, so all these things are energies that are having an impact upon your life and upon your personality. Then in addition to that, you have 12 houses. And uh, it just gets really complex, <laughs> too complex for me. I mean, astrology is really, really complex. But all I know is I had a uh, professional astrologer do my astrology chart, and she told me my whole life. And all she had, all she had on me was my name, my date of birth, and my time and location of birth. And she talked about uh, things that were in my heart. She talked about she talked about my karma. She talked about things that I might experience in my life based on my star chart. Now, here's so so my life in this earthly vessel, to a large degree, is ruled by or influenced by the planets and the stars. Now, even the Bible tells you this. For those of you that you know, you need scripture for everything. Genesis chapter one, God put the, the heavenly bodies in the sky to have dominion upon the earth. And in Job 36, I think it is, he talks about the influence. God himself talks about the influence. So are you able to bind the influences of the stars upon the earth and the way they impact our consciousness? So we are born into this world. Listen, watch this. Now, the ancients believed that, the, that your fate was in the stars or that your fate was governed by the stars. The, and we believe to a certain degree that our personality and our daily experience is governed by the stars. Uh, so if I'm a Virgo, one of the things with Virgos is we are the, the pain in the ass to everybody else in, in the star signs for the rest of the year. Like, like if you're born between August 20th or whatever it is and September 20, 20th, 21st, 22nd, 23rd, whatever it is, I just want you to know you're a pain in the ass. That's me. 
<laughs> because it's said of Virgos that our purpose is to purify by looking for what's wrong with things and pointing it out. We have the tendency to be very detail-oriented. And I, you can definitely see that in my personality. I'm definitely fact-checking, fact-checking on top of fact-checking. Uh, facts are important. Truth is important. And I don't have a problem pointing that out to people. That's the Virgo part of me. Now, on the flip side of that, Virgo becomes a pain in the ass because we become too critical. <laughs> we, become, we can become out of balance with it, or we have the shadow side of our sun sign. We become too critical. Uh, we become too negative. Um, because, and, and we become too focused on, on the wrong things. We lose the forest from the trees. We focus on the details. We're the, we're the ones that are going to uh, strain the gnat and swallow the camel, so to speak. Now, other people that are relatively familiar with, with, uh, astrology knows that the plants go retrograde, that the plant, the plants, the planets go retrograde. And we're always hearing about Mercury retrograde because it messes with our technology, right? So, the idea here is that your life, your personality in this earth is, if not dictated to you, heavily influenced by the stars and the arrangements of the planets when you were born. And then as things progress, you have like what's called a Saturn return and you have a Jupiter return, which is supposed to impact your consciousness in different ways. And a good astrologer can look at the stars and kind of tell uh, what is going to happen. So your fate, your future is determined, your way of being in the world and your future is set in the stars. Your fate is sealed. This was the ancient idea. And if astrology gains, gains traction, I'm sure we'll return to that in some form. So what is the point of Joseph? What is the point of Joseph's dream? Joseph's dream is telling him this. Listen, it's, it's, remember, the 12 tribes were representative of the 12 constellations. And Joseph, watch this, Joseph sees a, sees his star. Are you making the connections? The, the Magi said we saw his star in the east. Joseph has a dream and he sees his star. And what does his star do? His star causes the other 11 stars and the sun and the moon to bow down to the earth before him. <laughs> so Matthew isn't necessarily pointing to a star and an astrological phenomenon that happened whatever, 2,000 years ago, he's pointing to Joseph and the story of Joseph and the story of Joseph's star so that you can see a process that you can go through <laughs> that can cause you to, to be born from above and live from a heavenly perspective far above principalities and powers and might and dominion that rule the darkness of this age. When Paul says in Romans 12, be not conformed to the pattern of this world, the word for world there is uh, is the cosmos. Do not be conformed to the pattern of the cosmos. It's quite possible he's talking about the influences and the fate of your stars, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may demonstrate what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So that the truth, the story of Joseph is about a man who faces adversity 
at every turn. His brothers throw him into a pit. He gets sold into slavery. And he keeps rising. He gets into Potiphar's house and he rises to the top. And then Potiphar's wife accuses him falsely of having sex with her because he wouldn't have sex with her. And so Potiphar throws him in prison. And he goes to the bottom of the prison and he works his way up. You see, he keeps having this descent and ascent. He, he, he tells the story, he descends into the pit, he ascends in Potiphar's house, he descends into the prison, and then eventually, because of a dream, he ascends to second to Pharaoh over all of Egypt. And his brothers do indeed, in fact, come down and rule, uh, or come down beneath him. And so it's telling the story of how you can rise above your stars. How you can rise above your fate, how you can rise above these influences so that that star, that morning star can rise in you. That's the whole pattern and principle of Lucifer in scripture. That Lucifer said, I will do my will. I will, I will exalt myself. Watch this. I will exalt myself above what? The stars of God, it says in Isaiah. 14. Jesus calls himself the bright and morning star. We're told in 2 Peter chapter 1, I think like verse 14 or something, somebody can find it for me and put it in the chat maybe, that, that we are to take heed. Watch this. Watch this. He says, we received this prophecy, this story of Jesus, this prophetic word. We received this prophetic word on the mountain, right? He says, which you do well to give heed, like a light that shines in a dark place. <laughs> the sun gradually descending in winter and death taking over. Until the morning star, the Lucifer, rises, the day star rises in your own heart, and your own star begins to shine in the sky. That this whole process is a process of consciousness that we go through that gives birth to the Savior in us who delivers us from our sins because He sets us free from all the aspects of falsehood and all the influences of the stars in the world and the planets and, and our fate and all the adversity that comes against us in our life so that there's something in us that can rise up so that our true will and our true course uh, and the light can shine through us and we and we can rule over the sun the moon and the stars will come and bow down to the earth and from a position seated in Christ far above principalities and powers we can express ourselves and that divine life and that divine sun that's in you can find expression through you and as that divine life and that divine power finds expressions through you then it finds a way to rule your stars to rule your destiny to rule the influences over your life so that you are not subject ultimately to the the circumstances and the forces outside of you that seem to be impacting and controlling your life, but there is something inside of you. That, that, that he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. That is that Christ consciousness, that super consciousness, that higher self, that divine spark, that authentic self, that eternal self, the spiritual self, the heavenly self, the divine substance, the heavenly substance, rising up like Lucifer in you, to throw off everything that would control you and prevent you from doing your true will, which is the divine will, which is the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven, because the part that we are talking about is the divine. It is God with us. It is not God other than us. It is not God... Uh, uh, without us or us without God. It is a marriage of the divine 
and the human. It's not us trying to escape our egos so that we can just bliss out in oneness with God. That would be God without us. And it's not us getting trapped in the lower elements of our ego of fear and shame and disbelief and, and all those lower energies which are the sins of the ego. But it is the divine light raising the life of the ego, raising up those energies, raising those energies of the shadow and the darkness of the winter of your life. All the things that you want dead and buried and you want to hide. You got it? Everything that's hiding in the shadow of death inside of you, behold, a light shall shine <laughs> and guide you out of darkness and into His glorious light. Hallelujah. All right. I'm done. <laughs> so, I suppose that's a Christmas story like you never heard it told before. I hope it encourages you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it gives you a way to frame and understand and celebrate this Christmas. And what a better time. Uh, what, what better time when it seems like, you know, there are just forces arrayed against us. Wherever you're at on this thing, whether you, you know, however, our world, man, when none of us saw this coming last year. And what's going to be coming in 2021, I believe that all of this pressure and all of this stuff potentially has been an incubator for us. Well, not potentially. It, it has been an incubator for us. And we're seeing the manifestation of a lot of division, the manifestation of a lot of deception, the manifestation of a lot of hate, the manifestation of a lot of duality, because that's what people had incubating in their subconscious. But I do believe that in 2021, there will be this sort of progressive coming out of the darkness into the, into a new summer, uh, of, of, of life and a renewal and a rebirth. And, uh, and so be of good courage, my beloved brothers and sisters. Uh, feed in the house of Bethlehem. Do some things to feed your divine self. I hope that's what I've done for you today. I hope I've fed and sparked something inside of you by taking a fresh look at an old, old story. So God bless you, and thank you. And if you share this, I appreciate you sharing this. Uh, that'd be awesome. Um, anyway, God bless you. Have a very happy Christmas. You may not be able to be around family and stuff, but make it the best Christmas that you possibly can.